always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I've had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Welcome to the third and final episode of the Real Woman podcast on location in New York. Uh, my guest today is... Legendary DJ Rob Swift. Yeah. And, and uh, Rob Swift, can you just give us a little, little brief, brief background uh, bio? Sure. Uh, so once again, I'm DJ Rob Swift. I don't know why I feel compelled to put the DJ <laughs> in front of Rob Swift. I guess that's that's just who. That's the part of my personality that I identify with the most. The musical DJ side become a part of me really. Um, I was born and raised in Jackson Heights, Queens, New York City. Uh, 1972 is the year I touched this earth for the first time and growing up in Queens I've been surrounded around a lot of different cultures and just people from all walks of life. I feel like it's definitely not just me. I think facts are Queens is the most diverse borough of all the boroughs here in New York. And I'm thankful for that because being around so many different people, so many different ethnicities helped me develop an appreciation for those who look different than me and talk different than me and, and eat different foods. Um, just walking here, I heard about 20 different languages. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's just all kind of perspectives on life because of that in this neighborhood specifically that I grew up in, Jackson Heights. So, yeah, that's kind of like a short, condensed little bio on me. <laughs> and uh, so you, how long have you been a DJ? I've been DJing since I was 12 years old. I'm 46 now. So that's what, 34 years? And, and how did you get started in that? My father was a DJ. And he would have my brother and I, my older brother John, he would have us help him pack equipment, transport it to the different places in and around the city that he got booked to DJ. He would DJ weddings, birthday parties, New Year's Eve parties for friends. He'd transport his equipment and I would get to see him manipulate people just by the music selection that he had. And that really interests me, be, interests me because I felt like outside of DJing, my dad was just this regular person that went to work from nine to five and then would come home and watch TV, eat dinner, and then go to sleep. But when he was a DJ, he just had this influence over people and this power and it really made an impression on me. So that was my first example of what a DJ did. Luckily, I had an older brother that was growing up as a wave, as a part of that first wave of hip hop enthusiasts. My brother is, I wanna say about six, seven years older than me. So he was 
immersing himself in breakdancing, rapping, DJing, graffiti, and being the younger brother, I always had to tag along with him whenever my parents weren't around. My brother was responsible for me. So he would take me to friends' houses who wrote graffiti, and I, I just have vivid memories of, he had a friend called Ishmael, whom we would go hang out with at times when my brother was bored and just wanted to get out of the house. And he would have to drag me along with him to Ishmael's house. And I, I have this vivid memory of Ishmael drawing a piece on a notepad as he was talking to my brother and me watching him like create this piece of art from the first stroke to the end like and he just carried this whole conversation with my brother like that memory just stays with me forever whenever I think of graffiti I, I think of that moment um my brother would take me to house parties I'd be the youngest person there and I'd be watching people break dance on some someone's living room. So what year is this around? This is early 80s. This is like uh, 1979, 80, okay. 81. Okay. Um, basically around the time that I was like from the ages of like 9 to like 11, 12. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. Um, some of the most coolest memories I have is of my brother inviting his friends over to my house. So my dad had all the necessary equipment that you would need to make mixtapes, DJ, but my, my dad did not want us to use it because he thought we'd break it. So my brother would wait for days off from school, holidays, uh, Lincoln's birthday, George Washington Day, whatever. And he would wait till my dad left to go to work and then would call his friends. He had a lot of friends that lived in the next town over, Corona, Queens. Mm -hmm. And these are young black kids. At the time, Corona was predominantly black. And these were kids with parents who were listening to James Brown, Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. And the thing about this genre of music, soul, funk, th these were the kind of songs that the DJs from back then that they looked up to, Grandmaster Flash, Coover, Africa Bambata, Grounds of Theodore, Tony Tone, Charlie Chase. These are the kind of songs that they would use for their sets when they would jam with their in in their rap groups and stuff or play park jams. So his friends, once they get the call from my brother that we were in the clear, my parents left to go to work, they would bring their parents' record collections to our house because we had the equipment, mm -hmm. and they would sit there all day and make mixtapes. His friends would rap, my brother would DJ, and I would just watch this from my living room couch. And it made a huge impression on me. And when I was 12, I asked my brother to teach me. I was just tired of spectating, and I wanted to be a part of that fun. Uh, so the movie we're going to talk about today is Wild Style, which was shot in 82, but released in 83. Correct. Uh, now, do you remember when it came out? Did you see it when it first came out? I vividly remember when it came out. I remember seeing the, this, I'm totally dating. I already dated myself, so it kind of <laughs> doesn't matter. But uh, now you have theaters in malls or megaplex theaters, right? right? right. Back then, here in Jackson Heights, we had two movie theaters. And they were on the same 
same street, 82nd Street, and actually we had three. One on Northern Boulevard called The Boulevard Movie Theater, and there was one called The Colony on 82nd Street between 37th Avenue and Roseville Avenue, and then there was another theater called The Jackson Theater between 37th Avenue, uh, I'm sorry, on the opposite side of Roseville Avenue. And The Jackson Theater was carrying Wild Style, and this is back when theaters had like the marquees and all that. So I remember seeing the poster for Wild Style and, and under the poster there would always be like screenshots of the movie. Um, and it'd be like Ken Swift like in a, in a b-boy pose. Or you'd see the Cold Crush Brothers like rhyming. Yeah, that so movie. So you, you knew who these people were. I knew who these people were because I had an older brother that was literally immersed in hip-hop and he's as old as the originators of this art form mm -hmm. you know so he would sit me down and play cassette tapes of cold crush brothers fantastic five freaks jazzy j and the jazzy five dst and the infinity three he would just play mixtapes of these legendary hip-hop kids yeah. teenagers jamming in in gyms in parks rapping their djs spinning the kind of break beats that his friends would bring over to our house to make the mixtapes so i was educated on who they were before the movie even came out the movie just helped bring for me a, a visual representation of what i was hearing on these cassette tapes because mm -hmm. again i was 9 10 and 11 years old so I wasn't necessarily old enough to leave my house without parental guidance and go, go to the yeah, Bronx and, and go to a, a park jam. Like right, I was right. too young, but my brother would show me, play me the tapes and then break down, explain everything that was taking place. So I had to kind of visualize it all as I was listening to these tapes. And then when Wild Style came out, I got to see it. And, and, and it's not to say that I wasn't seeing it in person. Like here, a lot of people credit the Bronx for starting hip hop, and, and I acknowledge that. But here in Jackson Heights, Queens, Queens was representing yeah, too. Yeah, Queens was representing too. And we had, you could go from here to the train and easily on your walk encounter kids on, on one of these corners, 30, 37th Avenue, Roosevelt. Um, 82nd Street on cardboard breaking with a mm -hmm. with a boombox on the floor like that was a common occurrence here in Queens specifically specifically Jackson Heights um, there was another movie called Star Wars that came out before Wild Style this was a documentary about the graffiti scene in the early 80s mm -hmm. and they also talked a lot about breakdancers rappers in the movie and one of the scenes in the in the movie Star Wars took place here in Jackson Heights. Uh, the scene in the roller skating rink called USA. Mm -hmm. uh, the battle between the dynamic breakers and the rock steady uh, breakers featuring Ken Swift, Crazy Legs, Frosty Freeze, Mr. Freeze. Um, that took place blocks away from where we're sitting right now. Literally blocks, like we could walk there. The roller skating rink doesn't exist anymore. I think it's like a fish market or something now. <laughs> right. But um, so I grew up in it. I grew up in it. Yeah. But the movie Wild Style helped me 
kind of like finally see what I was hearing on these cassette tapes. So it was it was definitely you would say an influence on you in terms of um, not just seeing them, but but also um, seeing the area because you say you couldn't go up to you know Sedgwick or right. South Bronx and or you know see these trains. So seeing it and 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 putting a putting a face to the to the people you've been listening to. Right. Exactly. Um, and. That sort of, I'm assuming it, it helped sort of push you towards wanting to do this even more? It did. It did. It, it really pushed me towards the art because this was something now that, like, the stage, to me, really made an impression on me. Like, I wasn't just watching my brother and his friends do it in my parents' living room. This was on a movie screen mm -hmm. and sort of legitimized. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it made me realize that, that, that there was something of uh, 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 legitimacy, uh, value in it that I couldn't appreciate just watching my brother do it mm -hmm. in front of me in my, in my living room. So I think that made a huge impression on me. And that was around the time that I asked my brother to teach me how to, how to, how to do this. Uh, now, why is it, do you think, I know that um, the rise of rap and hip-hop occurred sort of simultaneously with graffiti, mm -hmm. um, and they are often paired together, but it's not like the rap artists were also doing graffiti. It was different sets of people, mm -hmm. one group doing graffiti, another mm -hmm. group doing music. Um, why do you think, at least in wild style, that they... Put them together well so that's a very interesting question and the answer is somewhat complex so in new york city the graffiti scene was its own entity people now in 2018 when they look back to that era in hip-hop have this conception that all of the art, the I should say not the art forms, but the elements of hip-hop, we consider now there to be four elements of hip-hop. DJing, MCing, breakdancing, and the graffiti art, okay. right? So at the time, though, in the mid to late 70s, there were no four quote-unquote elements. It was just these different subcultures all growing simultaneously. You had the subculture of the breakdancer, the subculture of the graffiti artist, um, the DJ, and the MC. Now, technically, if you look at it, it would make sense that the breakdancer, the DJ, and the, and the MC would kind of move in the same circles mm -hmm. because all three revolve around the DJ, right? right. They, they right. if you think about it, the DJ inspires the dance, the DJ inspires the poetry, the rap element right. of it. And some, D there were DJs that used to break dance. Grandmixer DST, one of my DJ heroes, was a break dancer. So was Grounds of Theodore, the guy that we credit for inventing scratching. You had 
rappers who were DJs first, Grandmaster Cass, who wrote uh, a portion of Rapper's Delight, legendary MC, you started off as a DJ. So those three elements moved in the same circles, but graffiti was its own entity. And a lot of graffiti artists were actually listening to rock. Right. A lot of them weren't necessarily into the funk and jazz that DJs right. like Flash were cutting up. Right. But the thing that happened, that, and the reason why I say it, there's more of a complex answer to your question, is because the media got a hold of this thing, this, this renaissance that was taking place in the Bronx right. that these kids were doing, mm -hmm. these teenage kids. And once the media got a hold of it, they started to look to who were the figureheads of, of this movement, right? And the, the, one of the main figureheads of this movement was Africa Bambata, one of the main staples of the Zulu Nation organization. And Bambata was also kind of like mingling and intertwining with a lot of the people from the village, the, the scene that was taking place in the village. You had uh, like the punk rock scene. And, yeah. and, and when you think about it, that has a lot to do with why when you look at Bambata, specifically older pictures of him from late 1970s, early 80s, he has like the spikes on, mm -hmm. the mohawk hair. Mm -hmm. that, that was the influence that he was receiving from the punk rock scene in the village and Alphabet City in Manhattan, yeah. the Lower East Side. So I think Bam being one of the figureheads of hip hop in the Bronx and the influence that he was receiving from the downtown scene, the village, punk rockers, CBGBs, that, that whole thing. And you know, it's interesting because, I'm going to correct, but um, on the one hand, you might think that hip hop and punk are Opposites or not. or not, but they're really very, they're very similar. Very similar. They mm -hmm. both come out of um, well, they're both youth uh, uh, motivated, mm -hmm. um, originated from the streets. Right. Um, Anti-establishment. Um, Anti-establishment, mm -hmm. um, and and coming out of not uh, happy situations, right. so to speak. Mm -hmm. They're you know. Uh, the Sex Pistols were not singing about, you know, right. happy-go-lucky things. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there's, there are similar factors and elements to, to both. Mm -hmm. and, and also, I think the idea of, um, the, even style-wise, they weren't punk. You don't really think of punk as singing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a much more of a driven, mm -hmm. you know, it's almost rap on speed mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> in a way mm -hmm, totally uh so i can see how they how the two yeah. would how intertwine right would intertwine mm -hmm. and how hip-hop um fans could also enjoy punk and, and mm -hmm. vice versa yeah so because of that because of that fusion that was taking place in in the aesthetic of both of those worlds 
Bambada specifically was one of the figureheads that started to kind of like introduce that world, that punk world to the hip hop world. He was sort of a, a medium mm-hmm. or a bridge mm-hmm. between both worlds because he was mingling and associating with the punk rockers and that whole scene from the village. But he was this kid from the Bronx who DJed on turntables and listened to funk and mm-hmm. soul. Mm-hmm. So as a result, I feel that Bam started to kind of like be more of the spirit of hip hop. And, and he, as far as my research is concerned, is the person responsible for, for now make, turning, turning this into like a culture. Whereas it was kind of this like free fall thing that was just happening and there were no real like set rules or vocabulary or anything. He made it more organized. Right, he kind of organized it. So structure. Gave it structure. So he gave it the four elements. The b-boying, the rapping, the DJing, the graffiti. It was bad that said these four elements are going to be under the umbrella of quote-unquote hip-hop. And and you see in Wild Style they go downtown. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, that's exactly what was happening. There's a there's a scene down in the in an art gallery mm-hmm. or someone's apartment. Right, they're, they're talking about art and, and it's down in like uh, Soho. Right, um, and even the final rap hip hop battle was in the Lower East Side. Was on the Lower East Side. Right. So both those worlds were starting to kind of fuse together. Yeah, and that's when that the whole idea of the elements joining under one umbrella which is hip-hop started to evolve but before that the term hip-hop didn't even apply to what they did they didn't have a name for this right uh what would they call it they would call it the go-off the go-off they would call it uh uh for example if there was a park jam they wouldn't say or promote it as being this hip-hop party they would quote unquote hip hop party. They would say, yo, they're gonna go off at such and such street. You know the park by da 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 da. They're gonna be going off. You know, and, and Jazzy J, one of the DJs that were around from the very beginning, has shared with me on many occasions, because I pick his brain a lot about this stuff. He has shared with me uh, the fact that they could have called it anything. He, to the break of dawn. That was a term that they would say a lot. Like, we're gonna be rocking to the break of dawn, or they rocked to the break of dawn. Mm-hmm. That was just uh, a term, a very popular term for a lot of the kids that were immersed in this this new culture, this renaissance that was taking place. Hip hop, the term hip hop was actually coined by a rapper named Cool Keith Cowboy. And Cool Keith was, uh, would MC for Grandmaster Flash. So in And I think he is in Wild Style. I'm not sure if he's I think Grandmaster Flash Flash is, is in it. Flash is in Wild Style. I'm not sure if I, I don't think Cool Keith is in the movie. Okay. Um because there is someone MCing for him. Well well the only scene with Grandmaster Flash in Wild Style is the kit the famous kitchen scene. Yes. Where he's scratching yes. in the kitchen yes. and the person he has a sitting yeah, right. And and the person sitting down watching him is Fat Five Freddy. I, I, it's possible that Cool Keith is in the movie, like like in the background, but he's not rapping or anything like that. Um, so who is in the... Because there is a uh, club scene. 
Yes. That's yes. In, that's in there, the there's a few club part. seats. Um, so the club was called the Dixie, and and that wasn't even an official club. That was like like this space that uh, was turned into like this nightclub. Right. Because at the time, these young men and women, it's not like they had the money to go to the popular clubs at the time. Right. The Roxy, for example. Uh, the people that would attend venues like that had money and went to disco. Right. These are inner city kids with no money in their pockets, so they had to find alternatives for having a party. And so it was either the park, you didn't have to pay money to get it to enter right. a park. Right. And so they were resourceful enough to figure out how to find spaces to be creative and play music for people. Or they would turn a space into like a, a makeshift nightclub. Right. And the Dixie scenes featured Busy B. Starsky, um, Cold Crush Brothers, Fantastic Five Freaks, uh, Little Rodney C., from Double Trouble mm -hmm. was also one of the Dixie scenes, uh, but I don't believe Cool Keith Cowboy was in a movie. Um, definitely not rapping. But overall, I guess the point that I'm making about all this is that there was no real quote-unquote elements of hip-hop or even a, the term hip-hop itself. The term was something that rappers would say in the middle of their freestyle rhyme, mm -hmm. uh, rhymes. So, for example, Cool Keith Cowboy would say, until the hip, hop, shoe up the bop. And after saying that over and over again, it caught on and other MCs started saying the same thing. With, with hip-hop, we borrow a lot from each other. Right. I see someone say something and it's clever, I might adapt it into my style and use it as well. So, other MCs started saying hip-hop Next thing you know, the words started to catch on, and the media latched on to those two words, hip-hop, that hip-hop thing. Um, so that's how the term became the official uh, term for what it is that we do as DJs, as graffiti artists. As far as the elements joining together, that was all Bambada. Mm -hmm. So after, um, so Wild Style comes out in 83, after Wild Style, uh, was there another like big hip hop movie? After Wild Style, it was Beat Street. Beat Street, okay. And Beat Street is a movie that also takes place in the Bronx. Is that Randon Sean? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Beat Street. Uh, and the 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 star for the Breakers in that movie was a, a kid named Robert Lee. And at the time, he this kid must have been maybe fourteen years old at the time. 15. He really was a kid. Yeah, he really was a kid, and and he wasn't necessarily the best break dancer, but there was a there was just something dynamic about him. He had a and, charisma. And, right, he had a charisma about him that you would just every scene in, with him in it, you would focus on him. And it's not like the, he was. I don't even think he was a professional actor. Um. But he just worked in a movie. And with B Street, that was more of a Hollywood production. Right. Harry Belafonte, uh, I don't know if he was the executive producer or producer of the movie. Um, 
but it, it, I guess the B Street was sort of his vision of what hip hop is. Right. Um, and it was more of a Hollywood production, more fancier, whereas Wild Style was just super low budget. And like we were saying, Flood yeah. Pudding has a documentary feel. Right. Uh, there are some great shots um, where of a woman who's sort of a Debbie Harry type. Correct. Uh, driving up through the South Bronx and just the, um, you know, you hear about the Bronx burned in right. the 70s, but if you weren't here, it, it's almost, I don't want to say fairy tale, but it's almost like mythology, like you don't really, you can't really imagine what that looked like yeah. and, and what that was really like. And to just see flames in the distance, and this was really um, uh, gave a visual to that. Showed you yes. what what the the South Bronx was looking like. Lost style, right? Yeah, yeah it did, it did. what it was looking like. Mm -hmm. um, and I love. I actually really love the scene when she finally gets almost to where she's going, but she needs help, and a bunch of kids run up to the window, and for a minute she's scared. Right. And she's like, it's like, oh my God, black kids are yeah, yeah, right now. And they're there to help. And they're there to help. They're, they, exactly. they pose no threat. Mm -hmm. They're, they're mm -hmm. you know, just kind of interested. Mm -hmm. And they help her, you know, with her car right. and help get her yeah, where she's right, going. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I like that it sort of took um, a scene where I think in a Hollywood movie would have been, uh, would have gone the other way. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and said, mm -hmm. No, these kids are yeah. actually not yeah. scary. Yeah. They're, they're not. just they're, they're just, just kids. kids and they're just on the street and right. and you don't have to be afraid of them. Wow. And, and one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's mm -hmm. it's wonderful and I you know, it's very interesting watching it now in twenty eighteen when we have all of these stories, practically one a week, mm -hmm. of you know a white lady calling nine one one. Right. On on right. you know black kid or black guy doing whatever. I know, I know, I know. And, I, and, yeah, that's and here it. we got, you know, 1982, yeah. and she's clearly scared, but then it's, oh, they're okay. Right, yeah. They're just kids. Yeah. Well, they're they're going to help me. Just kids. Yeah. Well, uh, and I, I thought that was a really good scene, and I just like that whole montage of, mm -hmm. of, of you know, seeing, seeing the city. Um, now, I know, because I'm a I'm a few years younger, um, so I was sort of, I became aware of hip-hop, I mean, in terms of movies. I, I'm a native New Yorker, so I certainly was aware of hip-hop. Uh, you know, Manhattan too, there were kids on cardboard, you know, uh, cut out, doing break dancing and had the boom box, and I mean, that whole scene was certainly happening uh, uh, in Manhattan. But in terms of Hollywood movies, um, I was aware of like um, Breaking, you know, and like Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo, and all of that. And even at the, the young age that I was, I thought, well, this is cheesy. Yeah. You know, like this is yeah. almost making it campy. Yeah. You know, it's like it's taking something, and I didn't necessarily have 
the vocabulary. Well, you knew. But I knew. Yeah. I knew. I thought, well, I, this isn't. Plus, it was LA. Yeah. It wasn't set in New it was York. In New York, yeah. And I just thought, are they really? They is really that, did it. Are they really doing this? Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's what happens when industry takes a hold of an art that's organic and raw. It becomes polished and sanitized and and then you have the white girl right, exactly. who suddenly becomes the rep, the hip hop right. dancing star. Right. It's like, exactly, exactly. Okay. That's what happens. And it's happening right now with DJing. Specifically, you have this art form that historically has been imperfect, meaning you deal with the turntable skipping, mm -hmm. vinyl, which wears, mm -hmm. if you use a specific part of a groove over and over again, and you let the record play over that part, you could tell that that specific part on that piece of vinyl is worn out because you've been scratching it over and over again. Mm -hmm. You get what we call record burn. Mm -hmm. um, those elements of the art have been sanitized and now you have technology that allows you to play MP3s from your laptop so the record burn doesn't exist. Everyone sounds perfect now because the needle, even if it skips, you could use apps that kind of disguise mm -hmm. those raw organic elements of this art form. So that's what happens when any industry takes over a culture, you know? And yeah. you know, when the people who created said culture lose control of it to industry and money gets into the picture and it's about how much, how can we package this to make a profit off it? Then yeah, you're gonna get the, the break-ins, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the movie Wild Style, I think, in a lot of ways, is a great metaphor for um, how you could take something that's organic, and once it's exposed to the masses and the industry, it loses its authenticity and just becomes a product. Yeah. You know, and, and, and people today see hip-hop as a product. Like, I want to produce hip-hop so I can make money. I right. want to produce this outcome so that I could be famous, right. so that I could get girls, so I could get followers. And it's a product to a lot of people. People like myself view it more than a product. It's um, an art form. It's an art form, and it's a way to express yourself and connect with your creativity. And, and can you tell me the story a little bit behind why it's called Wild Style? What the title, why, why the title? Yeah, so Wild Style was a technique that graffiti artists would use in their art. Uh, it's a way of camouflaging letters. And. So it's a graffiti. It's, graffiti it's, like a, it's, a, it's a graffiti technique. Okay. And so, for example, uh, if I took my name, Rob Swift, I could do a graffiti piece where the letters are very clear. Uh, you could visually make out the R from the O, from the B, from the S, so on and so forth. But a wild style piece camouflages the Rob Swift so much that you almost don't even, like the letters just blend into each other. And it's just a, a technical way of, of 
drawing your name. It's a wild style. Okay. Um, so hence, you know, like wild style, like it's just right. wild to look at, you know. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, that's where the term comes from. And wild style really is about a graffiti artist. Yeah. You know, that's and who is actually a graffiti who's artist. Who's actually a graffiti artist. He's not an actor portraying a graffiti right. artist. He's actually a graffiti artist. Right. Um, so would you say, what has there been since wild style uh, a movie either a hip-hop movie or a movie with hip-hop in it that you would say that's, um, you know, that's good, like that's, clearly it's not breaking, mm-hmm. you know, but did, has something come since then that you would say that's worthy of, you know? No. <laughs> no. Okay. No, okay. I think for me, Wild Style is the movie. There have been ma- many hip-hop-oriented films that have come out since Wild Style. Right documentaries, and so on and so forth, but Wild Style for Biopics. Me, yeah. You know, like, I know that there was a, a sort of straight out of Compton. Right, exactly, recently. exactly. Um, but Wild Style, that movie just, if you want to learn about hip-hop in an hour and 25 minutes, Wild Style is the movie to do it. Like, you watch that film and you get a pure, that is the most pure, most authentic representation of what the art was in 1982. And it doesn't, you can't, I can't think of a movie that comes close to that, except for maybe Star Wars, which was a a movie uh, about graffiti, but it was more of a documentary, an official documentary with no real like storyline. Right, right. Would it even be possible, do you think? At this point? I think at this point, I don't know, because the art has been diluted so much since 1982 that I, I don't know. I don't know if you could if you could recreate that. I don't even think you could recreate that with the artists that were in the movie now. Because they've been influenced by the got to be careful about how I say this because like you know you have legends today that I feel have lost touch with a lot of the the authenticity of the art um I've seen legendary DJs today that like you put them on Serato which is a it's a DJ app that us DJs use it makes it so that we don't have to love records with us to different venues um travel with, you know, crates of records, which is physically demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have your computer now next to you, and I've seen a lot of the originators unable to scratch without looking at the laptop to as a guide for them for where, where their sound is right. and whatnot. And I feel that that is such a, the, just, the juxtaposition there of like the legend the, the DJ who that app stole the ideas from is now relying on the app to do what they created. Right. It's it's mind-blowing to me. So I've seen video, I've seen it in person where like a lot of these legends will have a laptop there. They're staring at the laptop. We call that Serato face. We, as DJs, frown upon that because it's like you're letting the computer control you. 
before the technology, it was about you controlling the turntables and what you did on those records. Those Aretha Franklin records, those James Brown records. When I see a legend using a laptop and they can't focus their attention on the record and they're just constantly staring at the laptop to see where they're at as far as a sound from a song, um, I don't know, that breaks my heart. So I don't necessarily, I go through all that to say, I don't think that we could bring 1982 with us to 2018. I don't think that's possible anymore because the culture, the scene has been influenced so much by technology and um, the capitalistic sort of mentality behind packaging this culture and selling it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that we could ever go back to, to 1982 ever again, which is why the movie Wild Style is so important because it's like a log of what hip hop was at that period of time, you know? Yeah. And, and almost, was, a, almost a slight um, hint as to where it was gonna go. What do you mean? Well, in terms of, in, it doesn't stay just geographically. It moves downtown. Right, I see what you you're know, saying. That's a good point. There, there are yeah. other people That's true. who start, you know, talking about it, and and um, you know, you have this the final scene, which is on the Lower East Side. You have masses of people there. Right. You know, I mean, it becomes it's almost like an arena mm-hmm. type. You know, I so I just I just feel like it's sort of. Um, and, you know, and the, and the last shot of the guy who does the graffiti backdrop. Yeah, Lee Quinones. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, sitting up in, on top and just looking at this, you know, right. it just seems like a small yeah. sliver of what's to what's come. To come right? It's like he's just yeah. sitting up there watching, yeah. uh, you know, the yeah, sea of true. people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was. It was interesting mm-hmm. that that sort of. Um, not that they could have known mm-hmm. at that time, what, but but you know it was it's slightly prophetic. Mm-hmm. You know, just sitting up there, uh, that it doesn't end. You know, it may begin in the Bronx, but it doesn't end in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it ends down in the Lower East Side, right. and it's become commercial. Yeah, they the the. Because I, I saw the, um, they had just quick shots of like prices, and it was like, you know, a dollar or something to go into the the club up in the Bronx, and it right. was like, yeah, it was much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It became like a business. Uh, yeah, and yeah. so it was like prices. And right, right, out. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. So it was already sort of pricing out the original fans. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, you now know, you pay a hundred dollars to see a Jay Z concert. If you're yeah, lucky, it's hundred dollars. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You might get nosebleed yeah. section for a hundred dollars. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. Um, so, is at the time before it came out, I know your brother was sort of part of in that in that world. Did people know that it was being made? Like, were, were, were people talking about it before it came out? I, 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 I'll I, be honest with you. I didn't know it was being made. 
I didn't know. But I was also nine, ten years old. Yeah. And here in Jackson Heights, Queens. Yeah. I think people in that scene, like the active artists, hip hop artists, knew. Yeah. Especially in the Bronx. And like, who's who in hip hop was in that movie? Even yeah. if they didn't necessarily have a line, you see them in the in the ending scene at, at that yes. uh, amphitheater in the Lower East Side. Yes. Like, if you watch the movie and know your hip hop, you see a lot of people, a lot of figureheads. Uh, Mr. Magic, Kumal D, um, AJ Scratch, a lot of figureheads from hip hop were in that film. Uh, and I loved the, um, the basketball. Yeah, the battle between uh, Cold Crush and the Fantastic Five Freaks. You know? Yes, that was uh, uh, because it, again, to a certain extent, I know it was staged, but it had a documentary feel. It felt like they were really right. They were really battling yeah, yeah. and playing basketball at the, same at the same time, and the and the and the women on the side. Yeah, watching, watching it, and they were yeah. having their own rap. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that they, that yeah. they were doing. Well, both those crews used to compete against each other frequently. They had a rivalry, Fantastic Five and the Cold Crush Brothers. So uh, they just kind of brought the rivalry to the film. Right, right. But that was real. They would battle each other. And my brother would play the cassette tapes of them battling each other. And it, you know, maybe just because I'm a film nerd and I see things that maybe aren't there, but it actually reminded me of West Side Story. Of, mm. of the very beginning where they're playing wow. basketball wow. and they start singing and dancing yeah. wow. while playing basketball. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's, I guess I'm positive that the person who directed it had seen yeah, West Side Story. And yeah. it's sort of, it was almost like they took a little bit of that, yeah. you know, because that was shot in wrong. New York. Wow, yeah. That was really shot yeah. on location that's in crazy. New York in real locations. Um, Charlie Ahern. Yes. The director, yeah. Um, uh-huh. And I and I just thought, I wonder if that was in the back of his mind. Probably. Of a little Jets, yeah. Sharks, yeah. you know. Maybe even him. subconsciously. If he yeah. didn't do it consciously, it could have been that subconsciously, yeah, that was in the back of his mind. And it came out in this, like, raw, yeah. honest way. Yes. You know? Yeah, I feel you. Uh, so that was, I found that very interesting. Um well, thank you. No doubt. This was fun. I'm DJ glad we got Rob to talk Swift. about a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah, this was yeah. wonderful. Yeah, right on. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to thank you and, and ask uh, if you have any final thoughts, uh, any final words about Wild Style that you'd like to leave with the listeners? Uh, uh, wow, Wild Style. I consider it the Bible of hip-hop movies. If you are a millennial interested in learning how to DJ or you want to rap, you want to be a producer watch this movie you know um i always i teach this art of djing at the new school university here in manhattan i have students that come to my house and learn from me in private and i always tell them it's important to have context on anything that you want to learn and as far as djing is concerned the history behind this art is so deep and dense it's important for you to know what you're getting involved with and not just do it from a perspective of, well, I can make money, so I want to learn how to DJ, or I could get more followers, so I want to learn how, how to produce and post my beats. Like, learn about the culture behind 
the techniques that you're doing because there were people like Grandmaster Flash, Grandmaster Theodore, Cold Crush Brothers, Fantastic Five Freaks that were doing this not because of followers and not because of anything other than pure creative expression. And um, if you could just get context on what you're doing, I feel like it makes your art more authentic and, and, and better. So the movie is important. And again, to me, it's like the hip hop Bible. And uh, I encourage everyone to watch it. You can rent it on Amazon Prime or Netflix, whatever you got to do. And I actually found it online free. There it is. I just Googled it and watched it and on watched their it. website. Yeah, there it is. And so I would like to uh, do a little uh, mention to the Library of Congress that if you're looking for a mo another movie to uh, nominate for, for uh, uh, preservation, Wild Style would be a perfect movie. It is uh, culturally, uh, uh, historically significant mm -hmm. and really captures a moment, a really relatively brief moment in, in New York, specifically Bronx, uh, specifically hip hop right. uh, history that really, we really can't um, go back and recapture. Yes. And so this is a movie that is worthy of archiving and preservation so that future generations can can enjoy it. Exactly. Uh, both hip hop and graffiti artists. Right. Uh, uh, is there's something to be to be learned and, and gained from this? Yes. So, for sure. Uh, thank you, Rob Swift. And, thank you. Uh, and we may do this again sometime. Yes. Yes. Right. Peace. Peace. That was cool. Thank you for listening to the Real Woman podcast. This concludes my series in New York, and next week I will be back in Detroit with a whole new group of guests. Thank you, and good night.